I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister and an author. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. Today, I'm pleased to have Kate Bendelow join me on the programme. Kate Bendelow is a serving crime scene investigator with many years' experience. During her career, she has worked on countless crime scenes, investigating everything from burglary and vehicle crime to rape, robberies, drug and firearm offences, suicides and murders. Pretty much all the crimes you can think of, really. Kate is also the author of The Real CSI, a forensic handbook for crime writers, which was published in 2017. She's also a crime advisor and she's helped many authors and TV producers, as well as appearing in numerous podcasts, including this one, writing festivals and lecturing at several events. Kate is also a crime fiction author herself, and we will hear more of that as we go along. So hello, Kate, and welcome to the programme. Now, before we really dive in, let's start from the very beginning. Tell us a bit about yourself before we get into the policing. Okay, so I am a mother of two girls, 15 and 12, married, living in Greater Manchester. Um, I am, uh, as you can see, we've got our cameras on for this podcast, so you can see behind me, I am an absolute book addict. I enjoy reading. Unfortunately, don't take to Kindle, which is why I've got two of my many bookshelves on show behind me. So yeah, I'm a huge reader. Um, I have just started back running as well, um, something I've not done for years and um, was inspired to get back to that after suffering with long COVID for sort of two years. So that's part of my hobbies and interests at the minute. In fact, I've been out for a run this morning, which so if I look a bit of a flushed, sweaty mess, then... We're both in the same boat at the moment, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, so um, yes, pretty much they're the things I enjoy sort of outside outside work, just family life, the usual sort of stuff. It might interest you to know that um, I lived in Manchester for many years myself. Did you? Whereabouts? Would you like to say? No, it's Old Trafford, Stretford. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, not, you're not my, not far from me. I'm Salford-based. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, oh, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Now, when did you join the police and, and what made you join? Okay, so um, I first joined in an admin role in 1997 um, with a view to becoming a police officer. Um, Four years later, I applied for the police. At the time, I wore glasses and contact lenses and I fell at the first hurdle because my unaided eyesight was way below the standards that were required. Um, Laser surgery um, was relatively new so I didn't sort of want to chance that so I was absolutely devastated because I felt like my dreams had sort of gone up in smoke before I'd even started then my boss sick of me sobbing over my my computer threw me down to HR and said go and see what else there is for you out there there must be something else you can do within the police and HR told me about the role of after sort of suggesting things like traffic warden which was no I don't have no desire to be shanted sworn and spat at every day um, she told me of the role, which at the time was known as um, scene of crime officer, or which is where SOCO comes from. Um, we alternate the terms SOCO and CSI, obviously crime scene investigator quite a lot, um, and in fiction as well. That's certainly British fiction. That's something that's quite common too, to alternate between the two. So I did a photography course at night school um, and got applied for the job, got to know who my local crime scene manager was and... Um, 
asked him if I could shadow one of his staff, which I did, um, did the photography course for 12 months and got in with a um, my photography qualification, as well as my background in working um, with the police and local council, sort of customer service based roles, that sort of thing. So although I work for a police force, I'm not a police officer um, the role is that of a member of police staff, so it's a civilian role. So even though we do have a sort of uniform and we drive um, liveried police vans, which marks out as crime scene investigators, um, unfortunately I can't arrest or taser anybody. And they don't even let me have blue lights, Joanna, which I'm very, very disappointed with. I have orange lights, but it's not the same. Yeah. Not the same. I, I was going to ask you about that from because what I heard, mm-hmm. you didn't you didn't have to be a police officer to be a CSI. No, no. So traditionally, when I first started, there were still some um, police officers in the role. Um, and it was sort of very much um, considered a role from, like, obviously people in CID, um, particularly if they were sort of physically past the best with regards to they were no longer able to chase criminals down the street. They were sort of bundled off into, into the soccer world. So, yeah, when I first joined, there was a bit of an overlap. And it's interesting, actually, because... I know some of the people who I, I joined with who've been in for sort of 10 years before me said there'd been a lot of tension at the time between police officers and police staff because the police officers felt it was a role that had been taken off them. Because obviously to do the job, we I, I, you know, that the issue with it being a civilian and a police officer role comes down to whether or not you've got that power of arrest and that sort of things. And obviously... My job is just to investigate and recover and gather and record evidence. I don't get involved with interviewing suspects or anything like that. We spend a lot of time in custody processing suspects and taking um, samples from them. But obviously, I'm not involved in the interview process. That is very much a police thing. So interestingly, I know know when it first became civilianised, I think it was not just my force, but other forces across the country. There was a little bit of them and us attitude. And I think some of certainly any long in the tooth detectives thought it was a case of we were coming stealing their jobs. Whereas now it's accepted that it is a civilian role. Well, you must have seen my list of questions because that was one of the questions I was going to ask you about challenges that you faced in, in this role. So challenges, I mean, like I say, this is my 22nd year of doing the job. Um, The challenges I faced initially um, were very much um, sort of sexism in society. Um, The number of times I would sort of roll up at a burglary and people would answer the door and they'd sort of look at me and I'd introduce myself and say, hi, I'm from, I spoke to you before, my name's Kate, I'm from the Crime Scene Investigation Unit, come about your burglary. They sort of look left or look right and they go, oh, I was expecting a man. I just assumed you were the the office admin, and that was something we used to get a lot of the time. Um, that that was a real thing, which is quite ironic, because I think the majority of people in us the soccer role in certainly in my force, majority of them are female. Um, I don't know why it attracts females more than men, but it does. Um, and maybe just we're more naturally nosy and inquisitive. I honestly don't know. That's one for the psychologist to suss out. Um, but yeah, initially that was that was a sort of big thing. This sort of imagery that you know this sort of work isn't done by by precious small tiny women. This has got to be a man's job, which obviously it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter who does it. Anyone's capable um, as long as they're physically able, because it is quite. Um, 
a physical job. And I'm not just talking about the scenes. We work out where we're doing something like a body recovery, because obviously that's very physical, trying to recover and move a dead body. But even sort of, say, for example, last week, I spent three days examining a car that had been used um, in a very, had been driven away from the scene of a very serious incident. And it's in a garage, which is a very cold environment. And there's a lot of sort of climbing in and out, back seats, front seats, searching under foot wells. Um, and I think each examination I did was probably like about five hours a day. And that's a long time to be on your feet and crouching and recovering and lifting things. And so it is, it can be very physical. I suppose the, only, the other challenges I faced, um, you'll have, you might have to get your finger on the bleep machine for this one because it, it still even now annoys me, is obviously not long into the job when I first started that awful American TV program, the CSI came out, the American CSI. I have never watched it. No, well, I've, I've watched it just out of curiosity to see what it's like. And I was banned because I nearly broke the television. So my husband said, we're not watching that again. You're not allowed. And the problem with that, and this is something which we, we found um, had a huge effect upon society. It's called the CSI effect. And it's basically, obviously, because this new phenomenon of DNA um, and forensics was sort of, even though obviously we've been doing fingerprint recovery and what have you for, for decades and, well, centuries, um, DNA recovery was new and it caught the imagination of the public. And naturally, because it is a fascinating subject, everybody was interested. CSI had all the drama, it had this cast of beautiful people with fantastic looking equipment and who were turning around sort of DNA evidence within 48 minutes and they were running out and arresting people and then interviewing them and then sending them to jail all within the space of an hour. Mm. And then I kid you not, I remember going to a burglary one day where the guy said to me, I can probably do your job for you. I went, okay, that's fine. But seeing as I'm here, let me do it. <laughs> and he said, yeah, because he said, I've got a full box set of CSI. And I started laughing, thinking, oh, this guy's a bit of a joker. And he was very offended because he was perfectly serious. Um, unfortunately, it's not the first incident I've had with that case. Um, I've been questioned on the torch I'm using. I've been tested. I've been questioned by the public about the type of fingerprint powder I've been using. I've been asked why I've not been searching for fibres. I've been lots and lots of stuff. More worryingly, though, not just the CSI effect um, sort of having an impact on somebody like me who then gets members of the public trying to tell me how to do my job. It's had a real effect and a real genuine effect on court cases with juries because juries have had a preconceived idea of how DNA results should work and how DNA evidence should work. And, and, and one of the things we sort of always tell people is we're, we're completely in a criminal investigation. As a crime scene investigator, I am completely impartial. I am going along to recover whatever evidence there is at that crime scene. And for example, if I'm dealing with somebody in custody who's been accused of an offence, I'm there to record whatever evidence I can get or find. So if that suspect is bruised head to toe, obviously I want to record those injuries because it might later transpire on interview that he's not the victim. Sorry, he's not the offender. He's actually the victim. I'll take evidence from him to see whether he's got the other person's DNA on his hands, because, again, that means whether or not he was in close contact with that person. Just because somebody is has been their DNA has been found at a crime scene doesn't necessarily mean that they're culpable. It could be if the DNA is on a movable item, for example, like a cigarette end or a drinks container, anyone could effectively take in that or kick that container or cigarette end into a crime scene. So these are the issues early on that we face with the CSI effect. 
and obviously sort of modern day now with regards burglaries. When I first started, it was brilliant because they did people weren't aware. We did fingerprinting, they weren't aware we did forensics. So you get good climbing in marks at burglaries um, from people's fingerprints. Or you'd get somebody who would smoke a cigarette end outside a house while they were casing it before they broke in. And obviously now... Um, all our offenders are obviously wearing COVID masks or balaclavas or scarves covering the faces. They wear gloves. Footwear is probably the main type of evidence that we get from crime scenes because that's obviously it's difficult to sort of remove or cover your footwear. Um, so we, the sort of the, the cleverer, if you like, the criminals think they're being, we, we've always got to sort of be one step ahead of them. So, yeah, I'd say they were probably the, the main problems that I face, the CSI effects and the fact that unfortunately I'm female. <laughs> <laughs> Are you one of those people that when we see a crime scene on TV that you've, you've got the white suit? Yes. Mm. Yeah, white suit, the gloves, the overshoes, the mask. And, and that's one of the things, obviously, you're aware from my bio that I do spend a lot of time um, working with um crime writers and people like that and uh, there's a couple my colleague as well who is a um he's peter james's um crime advisor my friend um colleague graham bartlett who's the ex-chief superintendent of brighton and hove and also a brilliant crime fiction writer in his own right we always make a point of saying to people there's nothing more frustrating than watching a really good compelling police drama to then see the detectives arrive and all the CSIs, they might have given a nod to CSI, so they're all suited and booted. And then the detective will just come in, snap a pair of gloves and start stabbing around the evidence with a pen, which they've had in their mouths like sort of five minutes prior. That sort of thing, that's Graham and I swearing at the television very, very much. And that's the sort of thing we spend time advising our crime writers sort of against. I mean, you don't need to sort of go along the, to the extremes of having you if you like for example if I was writing a book I wouldn't have and she arrived at the scene and she slipped on her first pair of gloves and she pulled on her crime scene suit then she slipped on a second pair of gloves and she put on a face mask and she put you know obviously that would be tedious but at least give a nod to the fact that there is some some sort of preservation in mind. Now obviously we, we cannot speak of any particular case or cases but let's start with say a murder take us through the process and and how do you as a crime scene investigator get involved and what do you do okay so once a murder has been established obviously uh, somebody rings in 999 i've come across a dead body uh, the first thing that happens is police response to a uniform and the the police cars with the blue lights will arrive and they'll confirm, obviously, if there's a body in, in situ at the address, they'll remove any people and animals from the crime scene and obviously start taking witness statements. We try and establish who our deceased is and sort of, you know, any information that's known at that point, any history of them, if they're known to the police, if the address they're at, what history is that known to the police. Straight away, they will instigate, the police will notify, the police officer at the scene will notify CID. Um, I have access to a police radio so I can hear what's going on in my area. And I also have access to our police system, which locks all the calls coming into our control room. So we're on duty. If we're in the office or an outbound. We'll probably hear as well as a job for us. A crime scene manager is always then allocated to the job, along with a senior investigating officer who will be a DI or a DCI. Um if it's obviously if it's a murder, it will usually be passed over to the forces major incident team. Um, they'll initially be supported by the local CID, 
or whichever area is covering for that job. So as a rule of thumb, there's usually a bit of chat before we, we don't just sort of go delving in straight away in our white suits and start picking things up and throwing it about. There's always usually a meeting with the crime scene manager and the senior investigating officer to sort of establish the facts of what we know before we go in. And then the first stage is recording and preservation. So um, the scene will be photographed and videoed and we'll go in with um, what we call stepping plates, which if you ever see them on crime dramas are the big metal state their plates they're made of the same sort of stuff so if you go in an aeroplane and you're going on the stairs up to the aeroplane it's that sort of metal and the reason we use them is it preserves any latent footwear marks that might be any on the floor say footwear marks in blood that sort of stuff or any other latent evidence we can't see so we will plate up to the body this is a very rushed pricey if you like that will plate up to the body be photographed um the home office pathologist may or may not come out at that point depending on their availability because they're quite a finite resource and they'll be covering several force areas so it might be even if they are available they might be in court or that sort of stuff so if they're available they will come if not they will be given a copy of the scene video and scene images before we get to the post-mortem or just prior to the post-mortem shall I say um, so any um, swabs and tape lists will then be taken off the body, any exposed areas of skin, and then basically we'll recover the body. Um, the crime scene managers will decide whether or not we will undress the body at the scene or whether that's something we'll do later at the mortuary. Ideally, we would do it at the scene um, and then the body will be prepared and then taken away for um, post-mortem. At that stage, it depends on the circumstances. We might then carry out more work at the address. So we might start looking for latent evidence, start recording blood spatter, start looking for weapons and phones. It depends on the information we have. It has been known that if we're not sure whether or not at that point death is immediately suspicious, it might be that we close the scene down until we've got the results of the post-mortem. And it can be as well things like you want to know, for example, if this, if they've obviously been stabbed, it's useful for us to know how many weapons have been used, if it's the same knife, what sort of size the blade is, so then we know what sort of knife we're, gives us an idea of what sort of knife we're looking for. Although in murder investigation, if a knife's been used, we'll pretty much recover any that's in, in the property. And then basically, yeah, what follows from that then is pretty much painstaking exam of the rest of the scene, depending on the circumstances, depending on that person's lifestyle, who they live with, depending on how many suspects um, are involved. But a, a sort of any investigation can escalate into a number of crime scenes because what happens then, for example, is your victim, the deceased, is a crime scene. They go off to the mortuary to have a home office post-mortem. The scene where the murder has taken place is a separate scene that might involve two or three CSIs, depending on the size of the property. If this suspects, the suspect then becomes a separate scene. Their vehicle does, their house does, their place of work does, wherever they went after the offence. Now, if you think then you could maybe have up to six suspects, you can see how things start to escalate and how quickly our resources get tied up. Mm. Likewise, what also happens more often these days is offenders might drive to another location and maybe discard clothing or weapons if that's later trans um, discovered on cctv or because of movement from vehicles we'll then have to go and then treat that as another scene so yeah it can, it can escalate quickly you can get short staff very very quickly and it's quite involved i had well not that i should have any idea but i had no idea it was so involved 
Yeah, because obviously as well. So, for example, um, if I'm if I've worked at the murder scene, I can't then go and examine one of the suspects because you've got that risk of cross contamination. What then further complicates issues, depending on our workload, is if I've attended a fire a firearm scene. Say, if there's been a firearms discharge in the morning, then ideally. I shouldn't be attending if there was another shooting. Not that we get that many, thankfully, but if there was another firearms incident or maybe a suspect from a different firearms incident later that day, I wouldn't be able to examine them because arguably I could still have gunshot residue on me from the initial exam. So all sort of things like that, it can get very complicated. As I say, I mean, we've never known that happened, but mm. it's just something you're mindful of when you're very short-staffed and mm. you're working in a busy force area where there's there's a lot of things going on at once because it's not unusual for, for sort of my force, certainly, to be investigating um, sort of several murders in a week. Mm. It's society today, I think, especially with the sort of the increase in, in violent knife crime. Mm what used to just typically sort of happen over a weekend and an evening. Um, now, as, as I'm sure you know yourself from looking at the media, when does a stabbing happen? It can happen eight o'clock on a Wednesday morning. You know, it, it's it really is becoming a huge, huge issue. Mm-hmm. So what you do then, so um, in finding the perpetrator, what what do you do? You find the forensic evidence. Is, is that what you do? Yeah, so basically any forensic evidence that potentially could be transferred from the victim to the crime scene. So obviously your main thing, particularly when there's any sort of violent assault, is blood. Blood is notoriously difficult to get rid of. And if you think if, say, for example, our offender stabs somebody at a scene and then makes off, there's likely to be traces of that blood then inside their vehicle. Um, If they go straight home with the uh, idea of clearing up, you're going to get it on the door handles, you're going to get it on the shower, the taps, that sort of stuff. And however much they think they might clear it up, we will go in with a fine tooth comb and we will examine every single area that they will have touched or might have touched, even if need be, doing work on the washing machine, the sink area, that sort of stuff to discover traces of blood. Uh, we've got the equipment basically to find and search for blood and see whether it's present. So, including even bringing in a, a, a dog if if we if we need to. So, um, yeah, that's the sort of thing. So, obviously, biologically, I'd say in DNA wise, blood's going to be the main thing. But we could also be looking for things like. So, for example, if it's very forensic attack and particularly somebody's being strangled, you might well get traces of saliva off the victim. If somebody's sort of been angry and shouting and spittles flying from the mouth, um, it could be hairs discarded. There could be fibres from clothing. Fibres is something we always look for, but can be a little bit of a tenuous link these days with sort of like the modern clothing we have. Like, for example, denim is not brilliant for shedding fibres. If it's something like a sort of waterproof jacket, that sort of stuff, or a real sort of water weather resistant um, sports top, those sort of items, again, don't tend to shed that many fibres, but it's still something we would look for. Um, Other trace evidence that we would look for would be, depending on the circumstances, for example, if a car's involved and there's been a car crash, we'd be looking at... um, paint samples, glass samples, anything like that, you name it, we'll we'll look at it. And sometimes it can be pretty unprecedented. So it could be, for example, I remember many years ago when I first started, we um the guy who was mentoring me and I, we went to um, a very, very nasty armed robbery at um um the guy who was the um manager of the bank had been his house had been broken into and he'd been sort of kidnapped from the house with the keys to the bank, the made to open up the bank. So obviously the bad guys could try and get hold of the money 
And when we got to the scene, we noticed that they were in the middle of redecorating and there was a lot of exposed sort of plaster dust in the hallway where we knew the offenders would have come and gone. So, for example, we started taking samples of that plaster dust with a view that when we got these guys locked up, chances are they would then have traces of that plaster dust inevitably on their clothing, the way they'd come in and out the hall. So trace evidence is basically anything that you might find at a scene that you can then locate on on your victim or in their car, that sort of stuff. Going back to the blood. Yes. Luminol. Oh, you've <laughs> picked my favourite subject. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I, I want to make myself out to be a right hypocrite now because obviously I mentioned the first uh, the CSI programme mm. before. And one of the things that I think sort of pushed its popularity was they had people they had them showing all these far-fetched sort of scientific Mm. things that we in reality we don't have luminol is one we do have and i've seen it a few times um over the last 22 years in action and it is very impressive particularly where there's been a lot of blood that's been attempted to clean up and it's amazing um, to see sort of the before and after pictures because you can scout the crime scene and I remember one occasion we even brought biologists in to help search a scene that had been cleaned down and you think you've sort of like can be searching for areas and think there's nothing there but then the minute they spray the blue luminol and it all lights up particularly if there's been an attempt to remove a carpet mm-hmm. and then you see bits on the skirting board and floorboards and stuff like that absolutely fantastic in reality it's an absolute pain because it has a lot of like any presumptive blood test it has a lot of false positives mm-hmm. so it reacts to things like um various cleaning products stuff like that i mean it's like we have one of our presumptive uh, presumptive blood kits that we use which is called the castle Meyer test and um, we use it so for example if i thought there was a bit of blood inside a vehicle i'd use filter paper to swab it apply the castle Meyer, and it will turn pink if blood is present again that has false positives and one of the things it would positively react to quite bizarrely is horseradish so it could be that you're seen spotted with horseradish and not with blood and some types of ketchup. And so, you know, it gets, but it is only ever presumptive. And that's one of the things with Luminol. It can give false positives. Um, the only other thing that with it as well is obviously to record the results, it has to be photographically recorded. And it's quite a specialist technique because you can only use it in a room that's completely darkened out. So we'll put black tarpaulin over any windows. We'll cover everything out to completely black the room up. And I think you've only got um, a window of about 70 to 80 seconds to photograph the glow before it fades. So it's, yeah, it's quite a, quite a tense process as well to see. And obviously that depends on the, the result. Best scenario is obviously the more blood you've got, the better it reacts. Mm-hmm. If there's not much, then you're just going to catch a little glimmer and, yeah, it's going to fade away. But, yeah, it's brilliant. I do love it. It's, and, it, again, it's just one of those things. It captures your imagination. Mm. And for a writer, I used it in my first book. Mm. And I had to use it in my first book because there's no way I could have held back until the end of the trilogy and used it in that. It, it really is good to see. Whenever I watch crime programmes, um, you always know, the narrator says, and they spray this blue thing in it, and we all go, luminol! <laughs> <laughs> 
It is fantastic. Yes. And I will say to anybody, if you are interested in it, and just do a Google search, and especially I think there's um there's a product called Blue Star, um, mm. which gives a, it gives some really, really good examples of I think if I remember correctly, it was um, a bathroom that is staged with blood before and after, and it is just so impressive to see. So yeah, if you are if you're listening and you are interested, then definitely do a Google search for Blue Star Luminol. It's fantastic. And the other thing as well as luminol, the other thing that's quite popular in CSIs is is the bleach. The same, well, the, the, the perpetrator. Oh, using bleach to Ble- yeah. clean up, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ideally, it can remove blood, but it depends on, you know, the thing with blood is, the analogy I like to, to sort of use with when I work with the crime writers is, if we can all record a moment where we've knocked over a full cup of tea or coffee and it goes absolutely everywhere, and now that's only 250 mil. But if you think, you know, you've done it yourself, you knock a cup of coffee over on your desk and it just goes absolutely everywhere. And then there's spots on the floor and you think you've cleaned it up and then you'll find a bit more on the coffee table. So if you imagine somebody in a situation where they've been assaulted and they've lost, say, two, three pints of blood, that is a lot. Now, you can get through as many bottles of bleach as you want, but arguably as well, the more you're moving around in that crime scene, trying to clean it up, the more you're spreading it. So, yeah, I mean, arguably, yes, bleach can clean up blood, but then there's always going to be people like me who go in afterwards. Yeah. And yeah, if, like I say, if there's a single trace, we will find it. At the end of the day, that's that's what pays my mortgage. So <laughs> if I'm told it's going to be there or yes. I think it's going to be there, I'm going to find yes. it. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think this is a good place to take a break. Did you know that the way a person walks can help crime scene investigators identify a perpetrator? Join us next time to find out how. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now.